What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Happy Monday. I hope everyone's having an incredible Memorial Day weekend. I was initially supposed to take today off. No newsletter, no podcast, no Twitter, none of that. Just hanging out and relaxing. But too much stuff is happening in the sports world, so I had to jump on the mic today and talk to all of you guys about it. First, we're going to be talking about Luton Town. I'm sure you've seen that all over your timeline this past weekend. They won the EFL Championship playoff game, and they're headed to the Premier League. Now, this brings a bunch of financial resources to the club, and I'm going to break it all down for you guys. Then, I want to talk about the Indy 500 and Monaco Grand Prix. We're not going to spend too much time on these two topics specifically, but I want to give a short recap and talk about some of the business stuff that we saw this past weekend at each of those events. Then, I want to talk about Deion Sanders in Colorado. Again, we've talked about this in the past, but some numbers just came out around how much money they made at the spring game, and I think it's going to blow your mind, especially where Colorado has been historically, so stick around for that. And last but not least, I want to talk about the Oakland A's new stadium. They released renderings for a potential new ballpark in Las Vegas this past week, $1.5 billion, 30,000-seat venue. I'll walk you through the details of the venue itself and also the public financing. So let's get right to it. All right, I feel like we have to start this podcast by talking about Luton Town Football Club. I think this is probably going to be one of the best sports stories this entire year. Now, for those of you that don't know, Luton Town is a 138-year-old football club located 30 miles northwest of London. It's a commuter town. They have an international airport. This club, this football club, was acquired for $7 in 2003. Seven freaking dollars in 2003. But the owners that bought the club only lasted 55 days they ended up pushing the club near bankruptcy a couple of years later. After that, all the mistakes that they made while in charge. And this team nosedived into the fifth division of English football. That's a league, right? For those that don't know, it's non-league, first off. But it's comprised of professional and non-professional teams. It's the fifth division of the pyramid in England, a.k.a. they were not any good. And the club's infrastructure has become a bit of a joke, too. Luton's previous grounds, the first grounds that they ever built, was literally next to a railway line. And the team and fans complained so much about not being able to see the ball because of the smoke from the train, getting hit with it, not being able to see, et cetera, et cetera, that the team was forced to move. And now fast forward, you know, almost 100 years at this point, their current stadium isn't much better either. Again, I'm sure you've probably seen some of this stuff online. It was built in 1905. Their current stadium was built in 1905, 120 years old. And this is not one of those like cool historic venues that got a bunch of different updates and it's just around for the charm. No, it is not nice to say the least. It sits 10,356 fans. And I saw someone compare this online. They said that the field in Allen, Texas High School, their football stadium in Texas is larger than this soccer field. And I looked it up. I was like, ah, yeah, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Allen, Texas is pretty famous though. Kyler Murray went there. A bunch of other players have gone there. They probably have one of the bigger fields. And I was kind of surprised that there are 75 football fields, high school football fields in Texas with more seating capacity than Luton Town's home stadium. And last but not least, fans are literally required to walk through houses to enter into the stadium. The field, the pitch is literally in the house's backyards and they frequently complain about their cabinets shaking during games when it gets loud. It is literally one of a kind. I tweeted out pictures this weekend. I also put some of the pictures in the newsletter. You have to check it out. And if you want more, just Google Luton Town Stadium. You'll find videos online of people walking through it. The stands are a mess, whatever. But to be honest, it looks kind of cool. Like it's literally embedded in the middle of the community. There are houses touching the stadium and everyone has access to it. It's like kind of cool, but it's just old. And you can't really imagine like Manchester City, Manchester United, like any of these teams coming to play there. But 
that's exactly what's going to happen. Because Luton Town is headed to the Premier League. You got that right. They are going to the top flight of English football. They beat Coventry City on penalty kicks at Wembley Stadium on Saturday, winning the richest game in football and securing themselves at least, at least $200 million in additional revenue by earning a promotion to the Premier League. Now, I want to give you guys some context on like how big of a move this is financially. I think most of you probably know how the pyramid works in England. Teams are promoted or relegated based on their their performance throughout the season. So three teams from the Premier League are being relegated to the championship, which is one league below the Premier League. And then three teams from the championship are being promoted to the Premier League. And the way this works is that the top two teams in the championship automatically get promoted. Then the third, fourth, fifth, and I believe six teams are put into a playoff for the championship. There is a winner-take-all final, which was what happened at Wembley this past Saturday. And the winner of that game gets promoted as the third team to the Premier League. So again, Luton Town won that game. And for context on like what this means financially and just give you like a little bit of an idea of how crazy this story is, Luton Town brought in about $20 million in revenue this year. About $20 million, maybe a little bit less. Next year, they're going to be making $200 million in revenue. $200 million in revenue. So going from $20 million to $200 million virtually overnight. They've now gone from the fifth division to the first in just nine years. They're the fastest team, the first team actually in history to make it from an amateur league to the Premier League in less than a decade. Nine years, they went from the fifth division to the first division. And look, I think, you know, the obvious thing here is that this is a little bit of anomaly. If you look at clubs in the championship, what usually happens is you're incentivized to go spend a bunch of money and try to get to the Premier League because even if you go in debt, a lot of these teams do go in debt. They spend more than they're making. They take loans out from banks. It's wealthy billionaires, whoever it is. They buy these teams and they try to make it to the Premier League because you have a chance, right? The top three teams every single year get promoted. And with that comes an increase in financial security. You get hundreds of millions of dollars in additional revenue and potentially even more if you're able to stay longer. So what we see is many clubs in the championship spend more money than they make, sinking themselves into millions of dollars of debt on the off chance that they can outspend their opponents to win promotion. But the interesting part about this story and what makes it so damn cool to me is that Ludentown didn't follow that blueprint at all. They don't have a celebrity owner like Wrexham AFC. They don't have a billionaire owner. They're not backed by an oil-rich Gulf state. None of that. The team spent just $9 million on wages this past year. And again, to put that into context, the top two spenders in the championship were Burnley, $32 million, and Watford, $33 million. Literally, So they spent a third of what the top teams were spending. They only have one player making more than a million dollars this year. And they were the 20th spending club at $9 million out of 24 in the championship. 19 other clubs spent more money than them this past year on wages. So again, the top earners were spending 30 million plus per year on wages. Luton Town spent 9 million and the lowest was 6 million. So Luton was one of the lowest spenders from a wage perspective in the league, yet they placed third. And the fact that everyone else zigged and Ludentown zagged paid off tremendously and financially, most importantly. Ludentown will now earn at least, again, at least $210 million in additional revenue across the next three seasons. And keep in mind, the way this works is even if they get relegated right back to the championship next year, they're still going to earn that $210 million. This is important because they're going to get about $120 million in broadcast revenues next year alone, next year. All they have to do is show up for the game's play and they get $120 million in broadcast revenue. And then if they get relegated, they're going to get $70 to $80 million in parachute payments if they get relegated. So the way this works is pretty simple, actually. Parachute payments are essentially a series of payments from the Premier League to relegated clubs 
for up to three years, right? Two to three years to help them adapt to reduce revenues back in the championship. So the uh, way to look at it is pretty simple. You make significantly less money in the championship than you do in the Premier League. So when you get promoted, your expenses go up too, right? You have to buy new players. The players you currently have want increased wages. They want bonuses, whatever it is. In Luton Town's case, they're going to have to make a bunch of updates to the stadium. Your your expenses go up tremendously. It's no secret. Like You're not going to be making hundreds of million dollars in profit. You'll make more money for sure. But ultimately, your expenses go up tremendously. So if you get relegated the next year... What do you have to do? If you're the Premier League, you can't just let teams come in, spend a bunch of money to try to compete, get relegated the next year, and then be screwed financially, right? Like it would literally wreck the entire system. The clubs would go bankrupt, all this stuff. So they give you these parachute payments to lessen the blow, right? To get some of these wages off your balance sheet and so forth. So again, they're going to get $120 million in broadcast revenues alone next year. That's not counting anything on match day. It's not counting merchandise, not counting ticket, none of that stuff. Just broadcast revenue from the Premier League. They're going to get $120 million. And then they're going to get a big chunk after that too, 70 to $80 million, we'll call it, in parachute payments, even if they get relegated. And the interesting part about this is if they're able to stay up, it is going to be significantly more. There are estimates from Deloitte that they think maybe around 360 or up to $400 million if you're able to stay a second year or even a third year. And we've seen this, right? Like it's not common that you stay up four, five, six, seven, eight years. You're not all of a sudden a big six club in England. It's just not going to happen. But you do have the chance if you make it another year, if the team's good, if you start buying other players and you you put a good performance on the field and you stay up a second year, that $210 million goes to $360 million. So again, this is something to watch. And not only is it a revenue perspective, but if you look at what happened to Fulham, they're now valued at $260 million after they got promoted, 58% increase in their valuation according to Sportico. That is insane, 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 the ability that they have to increase the valuation based off a bump in revenue and obviously attendance and interest and all that kind of stuff too. But ultimately, most of this money is coming from the broadcasting rights in the Premier League. If you just think about the difference between the Premier League and the championship, it's absolutely mind-blowing. So the Premier League gave out $3.1 billion or brought in $3.1 billion in broadcasting revenue last year. The top team, uh, or the worst team, sorry, in the Premier League received $125 million last year. The worst team. Literally, they finished last. $125 million. And if you compare that to Fulham, who finished first and won the championship last year, they received $10 million. So the difference in TV revenue from being the best team in the championship to the worst team in the Premier League is a hundred and we'll call it $15 million. Again, I don't do public math, but I think that's right. 125 minus 10, $115 million difference from being the best team to the worst team, one league up. I don't think anyone is like necessarily shocked at that, right? Like obviously you're getting more money if you're playing in the Premier League, you're sharing in those rights. It's more than Bundesliga and all these other leagues combined. It is the most lucrative thing when it comes to the major football or soccer leagues internationally. But at the end of the day, this is significant, significant money, especially for a team like Luton, who only spends $9 million a year on wages, $9 million a year on wages. And the other part about this is when I tweeted out the pictures, it's like kind of in jest, but it's also cool, right? Like I call their stadium shitty, but ultimately I would love to go to a game there. It's literally what makes English football so damn great, right? Is this stadium that is in the middle of a town, in the middle of a city. It's surrounded by houses. It has so much freaking character. It's shitty, right? Like the seats barely open. They're destroyed. There's houses that you have to walk through. There's trash places, like whatever. But it's cool, right? And the part that a lot of people didn't realize when I tweeted that was that they're going to have to put in $10 million of upgrades to the stadium just to get it to the Premier League standards, right? So what that entitled is, is that they're going to have to add, I think it was floodlights they said they have to install. 
The broadcast area has to be expanded where they allow the broadcast team to come in and, and uh, do these games. They have to essentially redo like an entire grandstand because it's it's getting destroyed. So there's like a few different things that are actually in the Premier League handbook that require you to update. Like your your facility has to be at a minimum standard to be in the Premier League. So they estimated it'll cost around $10 million for Luton Town to be able to do this. Again, they're going to be making hundreds of millions of dollars extra. So I don't think it's necessarily going to be a problem. And Luton has actually been trying to build a new stadium for a long time now. I think it was like a twenty to 25,000 seat stadium nearby. They've been literally working on this for like over a decade, maybe multiple decades at this point, and it just hasn't happened. So maybe this is the push that they need to be able to actually go and do this because ultimately, like, it's not often that you get the chance to move up to the Premier League and you get this huge financial windfall. One of the other funny things that I thought about this when I was reading up more on the deal was there's a player for Luton Town called Pelly Rudock. Mapoons. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. It's obviously not a name that I'm familiar with, but he joined Luton Town in 2013. He was a West Ham Academy graduate, right? So he had been around the big clubs. He had seen how they work, the facilities that they have, the way they operate, all of that. He gets loaned out to Luton Town. He goes to Luton Town and he was shocked at what he showed up to. So for context, Pelly has been with Luton Town the entire way. He's the only player in history to go from a non-league team to a Premier League team while staying with them the entire time. He literally stayed with them 2013 to 2023. He's been on the team every single year, and he has helped them and brought them in some degree to the Premier League, which is absolutely incredible. That guy deserves a freaking raise. He is obviously loyal. He's seen it all. He's been through it all. But more importantly, the quote that he said after getting promoted was hilarious. He said the training ground when he showed up was a dog's field with portable cabins stuck together. I came and I saw it. I saw the stadium and I thought, oh, man. This is different. Literally, the training field that Luton Town was using at the time, it was a field where the residents of the city walk their dogs, literally to use the bathroom, to play around it. So he gets there, and he's coming from a West Ham Graduate Academy, and he's like, you know, used to all that kind of nice stuff, obviously. And he gets to Luton Town, he's like, dude, did our training session just get interrupted by dogs on the field? Yeah, it did. It's obviously a different world, but that is what makes the English football system so damn cool. I was saying to someone over the weekend, like, the pyramid is incredible. It's so awesome. And I wish this was something that American sports had. Obviously, it's not something that they're ever going to do. Why? Because the owners would never agree to it. Even if you look at the MLS, right? Forget the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, all that stuff. Just look at the MLS. There are franchises worth a billion dollars now. A billion dollars worth way more than Premier League teams, right? Essentially, outside of the six big Premier League teams, there's multiple MLS teams that are worth like the middle tier and certainly the lower tier of MLS teams. And the reason for this is simple, right? Like, hey, we got a real estate play. We got expansion fees. We got the Apple deal, all that stuff. But ultimately, there is no risk of relegation, right? If you're buying a Premier League team or you're buying a championship team, there's no promise that you're going to be there forever. Now, again, there's a little bit of a difference with the big six teams. If you're Man United, if you're Man City, if you're Arsenal, if you're teams like that, Chelsea, whatever, you're not going to go down, right? You're spending significantly more amount of money on players than anyone else. It's possible, right? That's the beauty of this. It's possible. But the likelihood of that happening is, is relatively low. In MLS, you don't have to play those percentage games. It's literally zero. You're not going anywhere. You're part of the league. And it's exactly why we saw San Diego pay $500 million for an expansion team. They don't have a team. They barely even have a name. They haven't even really decided on a name. They have two options still. They don't have their own stadium. They're going to be playing on a college campus. They don't have a training center. Again, they don't have any players. They don't have any fans. None of this stuff. And the team is worth $500 million on paper. On paper, right? That's worth more than Newcastle United. It's worth more than Leeds. It's worth more than a bunch of other Premier League teams. 
simply because of the way that MLS operates. And I think this is like one of the key sticking points about MLS right now is like the sport's going to get bigger in the US. I, I wholeheartedly believe that is going to happen. If you just look at the trends that we're seeing, youth participation is up dramatically. They're taking share from sports like football, right? American football, where you're tackling and there's head injuries and there's all this stuff kind of going on there. So they're taking share from that. That's one thing that's obviously going to help the growth of the game. We've seen it in TV rights, both you know, domestically in the, in the amount of money networks are paying, right? For the Premier League, La Liga, stuff like that. And then thirdly, the game is growing tremendously on TV viewership as well. So not only the payments that they're making, but the TV viewership that we're seeing, right? At the last World Cup, and then in 2026, when the World Cup comes, I say North America, but most of the games are obviously in the United States. There's going to be some games in Canada and Mexico as well, but the finals are in the United States. And it's really like a US-centric thing, right? So people are betting that that's going to increase the interest in soccer or football tremendously. And at the end of the day, this is the world's most popular sport. There's billions of people that follow the sport, enjoy it, et cetera. And it's going to get more popular in the MLS. But again, I think this is one of the reasons why many traditionalists or people outside of the U.S. don't consider it even a top 10 or 15 league in the world. It's because, one, the talent's not there, but then you're incentivized in some cases to lose games, right? Like that doesn't happen in other places. If you look at the NFL, right, the worst teams get the best draft picks. That's just what happens, right? If you suck and you see a generational quarterback coming out, a Peyton Manning, someone like that, you're going to throw your season, you're going to lose games, and you're going to try to go get that player because it can increase the value of your franchise, but it can also make you a winner, right? And you need those type of players to be good. We've seen this before. The Browns a couple of years ago got accused of tanking. The Miami Dolphins, the same thing, right? There was rumors around the organization they were literally throwing games to try to get better draft picks. And that's coming down from the owners, right? Which you would think is the opposite because if you win games, traditionally valuations go up. We just did a podcast the other day about the Golden State Warriors and the Milwaukee Bucks and teams like that, where they've been able to outpace all the other teams in their league from a valuation perspective because they've won games, because they get additional revenue from playoff wins and playoff home games and stuff like that. And you're just not incentivized to do that, though, unless you have the best players. So MLS is the same way. It's a closed league. You're guaranteed future revenue streams. And more importantly, the payroll and the wages are capped, right? If you look at the biggest problems going on in the Premier League and other leagues like that across the world, the wages are getting out of control. We're seeing these nation states, these oil-rich Gulf states coming in and buy teams like Newcastle, Manchester City, whatever you want to call it, right? PSG. There's a bunch of teams all around the world that are getting bought by individuals that can spend as much money as they want and they're willing to pay as much money as they can, right? And ultimately, I think that's a huge threat to the health of the game, which is something a lot of people are trying to get under control. But ultimately, again, I think that's one of the things that MLS is banking on, right? The ability to come in and as an ownership, you're going to know what your fixed costs are a decade in advance because now we have the TV rights. You're going to be able to map out from a cash flow perspective what you're seeing on game day revenue, sponsorships, all that kind of stuff, right? You're going to have a general idea about what you're going to bring in, what you're going to spend. And in other leagues, it's not as clear. So I get why owners don't want it. I totally understand from a business perspective, but I think this is what makes the game different different abroad, right? Like it's just different. It's different. It's different. It's different. It's one of the things that I wish they could change, but that's neither here nor there. It's not going to change. I don't think we need to argue about it anymore, but this is the beauty of the game in England. This is the beauty of the English football pyramid. Teams like Luton Town can come out of nowhere. The fifth division, the fifth division to the first in nine years. It's absolutely incredible. They have a $9 million wage bill this past year. They have one player making over a million dollars. They're spending a third of what other teams in their league are spending and they pull everything together and they make it and they're headed to the Premier League. It's one of the coolest stories. It's what makes the sport so damn unbelievable. And they're going to be going 
from $20 million to $200 million plus in revenue. I hope they're able to stay up there for another year, maybe two years, maybe three years, hell, forever. I think it's awesome. I think it's incredible. I would love to go see a, a game at their stadium or a match at their stadium because it's one of those things. It's just cool, right? Imagine freaking Erling Holland walking into that stadium, <laughs> walking through houses to get to the stadium. I laugh at that notion. Same thing with Chelsea, Manchester United, wherever, right? These iconic footballing giants, these clubs, these players, whatever. Walking into that stadium is what makes the game so great and beautiful, and I'm a huge fan of it. All right, everyone, a quick interruption from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Hyperice. So Hyperice is one of the fastest growing companies in sports. You've probably seen their products by now, but they are the official recovery technology partner of the NBA, MLB, PGA Tour, and UFC. And a bunch of different athletes all around the world are using their stuff, like Patrick Mahomes, Erling Holland, people like that. Now, I'm super pumped about this partnership for one reason. I've been using Hyperice products for years. I use their massage gun and their heated back wrap several times each week. Anytime I have a tough workout or my back's hurting me a little bit, I throw it on and it is a game changer for my health and wellness. I think the coolest part for me personally is that I can use the same stuff that professional athletes are using. The same thing that Patrick Mahomes uses on the sideline to loosen up his muscles, I can use at home. The same thing Erlen Holland uses on his back to loosen it up before bed, I can use at home. I think that's absolutely incredible and I highly recommend their stuff. So the best part is they are giving all of you, my podcast listeners, 15% off your order. So start recovering like a professional athlete today. Go to hyperice.com and use code Joe 15 for 15% off your order. That's Joe, J-O-E 15, all caps at hyperice.com. 15% off your order. Let's get back to today's episode. All right, before we jump off for the day, I want to talk through a three to four different topics. And the place I want to start with is the Indy 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix. I'm piecing these two together because they're both motorsports. They both happen on Memorial Day weekend, and they were both epic in their own regards. So the Indy 500 is obviously in Indianapolis, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. This is an insane event. People don't give it enough credit. There's over 300,000 people that attended on race day. You know, people were commenting like, oh, the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin, Texas had 400 and something thousand. No, that was over three days. This is 300 plus thousand people on one day. The stands are freaking packed. It's an amazing, huge venue. I've actually been probably four to five times at this point. I used to go a lot when I was younger. I went a few years ago also. I would love to go back. It is so entertaining. The cars are so damn fast. You can get so close to the track. It's an awesome experience. I really think everyone should go. But this year's race was won by Joseph Newgarden. He overtook on the final lap Marcus Erickson, and he won the race. Marcus obviously won the race last year, so he was looking to defend his title and win it again this year to become a back-to-back -back champion, but he didn't. He got overtaken on the final lap, and there was a little bit of controversy. Look, there was a red flag, multiple actually on restarts at the end of the race. The race took, I think, almost like four hours. I was watching it, and it was just, it was crazy, right? There was a bunch of different accidents and red flags and stuff like that, and the restarts, you know, people just kept crashing, and... Marcus was upset. He said, look, we need to have time to warm up the tires. We need to have a lap at least to get going. We can't come from the pits and then start that next lap and make that the final lap. Essentially, what he's saying is, look, this was for entertainment. You guys didn't want to end on a yellow flag. And I see both sides, right? Like, obviously, he wants to win the race. So that's a part of the motivation. If he thinks it's unsafe or not, you know, maybe that's part of it. But he did the same thing on the lap before that, right? There was a restart. He took the lead and then there was a yellow flag and he was able to maintain the lead because he had already overtaken at that point. So, you know, it's it's neither here nor there. I thought it was an entertaining race. Newgarden actually got out of his car literally at the at the bricks. He stopped on the final lap and went in the stands and was like jumping around celebrating. It was awesome, very iconic, and just cool to be able to do with the fans. One of the other things that I tweeted that I thought was really cool and seemed to get a good reaction was 
the size and the scale of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So if you saw this on Twitter, sorry, but I'm going to say it again just because I thought it was so freaking cool is Churchill Down. All the all the things that I'm going to mention right here, I'm going to mention like seven to 10 things. Every single one of them, these venues, fit inside in the infield of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, right? So the infield is the area inside of the oval circle and the oval track. And all of these venues fit inside there, right? So if you were to carve them out of the ground and put them in there, their true size, we're not sizing them down under that stuff, their true size, they would fit in Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Churchill Downs, Yankee Stadium, the Rose Bowl, the Taj Mahal, the White House, Liberty Island, the Roman Coliseum, and Vatican City. I'll say it again. Churchill Downs, Yankee Stadium, the Rose Bowl, the Taj Mahal, the White House, Liberty City, the Roman Coliseum, and Vatican City. Every single one of those combined collectively, if you put them in there, would fit. That's how big Indianapolis Motor Speedway is. And one of the other cool things is that they actually have a golf course in there. There's a golf course literally next door. I think it's called Brickyard Crossing. Don't hold me to that, but Brickyard something. It's literally next door to the track, and there's four holes. A continuous four-hole stretch from that course is actually inside the infield. So you cross over and you play four holes on there. And it used to be closed, but I heard recently they actually opened it up, and now you can play on qualifying day. It's $5,000 for a membership, plus like another $1,000 if you add your spouse or a kid to it. So call it five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000, depending on how many people you have on your account. And then it's $250 for people to play during Indianapolis 500 weekend, which like, you know, it seems expensive if, you're, if your golf course is $5,000 to join for the year, but it's pretty damn cool to be able to play during qualifying. You can literally play during qualifying, which is crazy. I'm surprised that no one's been hitting balls on the track or anything else like that. Seems insane, but it's one of the biggest sporting events in the world. It is the single biggest day sporting event in the world. 300,000 plus people attend on Sunday alone. Very cool. One of those things that I just wanted to talk about. One, because I love it. I've been, and two, you know, it's got a lot of cool business behind it. I think you guys find it interesting. And I would highly recommend each of you go if you haven't gone yet. You live nearby, whatever it is. If you're able to make the trip, you should go. But that brings me to the Monaco Grand Prix. Now, I did an entire podcast about this last week. I tweeted out the video, and you should go check those things out if you haven't heard it already. It's super detailed, probably 15 to 20 minutes of content. You'll learn everything you need to know from, you know, why 50% of Formula One drivers live in Monaco. Hint, it's because of the taxes. The yachts that were going to be in attendance, the deal that Monaco has with Formula One, why it's so lucrative and special, all that stuff. You can go learn that stuff. I don't want to repeat it here today because many of you have probably already heard that, but I want to give you a little bit of an update on kind of what I saw this weekend. So one of the things I talked about last week on the podcast was the idea that Monaco got these special privileges. And there was three of them, really. There's a fee, right? So they pay $15 million to host the race compared to other locations that are paying anywhere between $20 million to $55 million. So they get a significant discount because of their history in the sport. I've heard that their recent deal, maybe that went up a little bit, but it's still relatively low. Even if it's 20 million, 25 million, it's on the lower end of what's required in the sport. They just signed a deal last year that's going to show the race until 2025. So it's a three-year deal, 23, 24, and 25. And supposedly the fee went up a little bit, but you get the point. They get a huge discount for being in Monaco in the history. But the other two big things that were on there outside of the fee were the TV broadcast. Monaco has always done the broadcast locally. So they've managed the entire broadcast themselves. It's a, co it's a company in Monte Carlo, a local company that does the broadcast. This year was the first year after that negotiation that Formula One said, hey, 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 no, 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 no more of that. So Formula One actually took over the broadcast like they do for every other race and did it the exact same. And it made a huge difference. Like if I'm just being honest, it made a huge difference. Anyone that has watched the race in the past and saw it this year, it was much, much, much better. Again, there's videos online of, of the old broadcast. They would literally be showing like random things on the track while people are crashing or doing overtakes or pitting or doing this other stuff, like exciting things. 
And they're showing like, you know, Stroll going around turns at half the speed he should be going, <laughs> right? And it's just like, come on. So the TV broadcast was better. Formula One brought in helicopters. So they had the helicopter cams like they have at other races. That was awesome. It was just a much better production. They knew what they were doing. It was a well-oiled machine. And I thought it was 10 times better than what they've done in the past. One of the other videos that went viral this weekend was the helmet cam. This is one of those things where it's like this very, very, very small camera. They've been testing it over the last few years at select races with select drivers. So every once in a while, you would see it. But for those that don't already know, Formula One at the beginning of this year said, uh, we've tested it for three to four years now. It's light enough. We got no complaints, no problems. The fans seem to love it. Every single driver has to wear it from now on. So now all the drivers wear it at every single race. They can tap into it whenever they want. They can show highlights from it. And one of the ones that they showed at the end of this, I think it was practice on, I guess it was like the third practice, maybe on Saturday morning, I guess. Maybe it was the second, but you get the point, was Charles Leclerc's helmet cam. And it just gives you like this totally insane view of you show your friends, like anyone who says, oh, I could drive a Formula One car. No, you can't. Just show them that view and they will get and understand why they can't. There's people commenting like, I would have crashed a thousand times. And that's literally the truth. They're coming in within millimeters of walls, going hundreds of miles an hour. And literally, it's one of the most skilled things you'll ever see. So good job to Formula One on that. The helicopters were great. The helmet cam was great. Everyone seemed to love it. The second part of that is the sponsorship. So I talked about the race fees and I talked about the TV arrangement. And the third part of the special agreement that Monaco has with Formula One is they fully controlled every sponsorship on the track. So they were going out, they were signing their own deals, they were placing up the signage, they were deciding all of that themselves. And there's no word out if this actually changed, but it changed, right? Like you could just tell. And I'll give you an example. So one of the ones that I talked about in last week's podcast and newsletter was Rolex. Rolex pays $50 million a year to sponsor Formula One. They're a title sponsor of the series as a whole, right? So every track you go to, Rolex is the official, you know, I don't know what they call it, like clock provider or watch provider or whatever it is, timekeeper, whatever you want to call it. You get the point. They are the exclusive provider on the watch side for Formula One. They pay $50 million a year. And if you look historically at Monaco, even just last year, but certainly years before that too, TAG, who is a competitor of Rolex, their branding is all over the track. It dwarfs Rolex. You barely see Rolex. And the reason for that is simple because TAG is the official watch of the Monaco GP. That's a deal they signed themselves probably for tens of millions of dollars. And every single year they would roll out TAG and it was the official watch and everyone saw it. No one saw Rolex, whatever. This was one of those things that obviously pissed off Rolex. Why are you paying for exclusive rights to be the sponsor of Formula One if you're not the exclusive sponsor of Formula One? And obviously Formula One rolled that concern down to the Monaco GP. And it's one of those things that it looks like they were able to change because when I turned on the TV this weekend, I barely saw tag. There was like a small section coming out of the tunnel where you could see the tag branding right on the backside of the tunnel and then along the barricades there. But then the final couple turns, it was all Rolex. And the big sign at the start finish line that used to be tag on the backside where they had some iconic shots of the cars finishing, it was always tag. And now it's Rolex. So look, Monaco didn't do this outside of the kindness of their heart. It was certainly something that was negotiated into the deal last year when they signed a three-year extension with Formula One. I've heard from different people in and around that kind of negotiation in the area say that it was a tense one. It was not something that was just like, okay, no problem. That sounds good. We want to extend. Everything's right in the world. Now it was tense. Higher up people in Monaco reportedly had to get involved in the negotiation. Now, as I said, I, I don't think this race is going anywhere. It probably wasn't really actually that close to going anywhere. But Liberty Media probably flexed their muscles a little bit and was like, look, a lot of people consider your race boring. We don't need it on the calendar. You're going to do X, Y, and Z, or you're going to get taken off the calendar. The sport has changed. We have more people that want races in their area than ever before. 
we can only do, you know, 23, 24, 25 races. If you're not willing to comply with this and get with the times, then you're going to go. And I think that's exactly what happened because whether the race fee increased a little bit or not, let's be honest, Monaco can afford it. Even if it goes up five, 10, 15 million dollars, they can afford it. They make plenty of money throughout the weekend. And the other stuff is like, you know, whatever. It's a little bit trivial, but it is what it is. The Formula One has a right to create uniformity in the broadcast throughout the entire season. You need the same team to do the broadcast. You can't have one race looking completely different than the rest. So I get that. And then the sponsorships are the same thing. Formula One needs to be able to sell that stuff at a league level, at an enterprise level. And that's exactly what they're doing. So I'm not surprised that stuff changed, but that's the business side of it. On a racing side, Verstappen, Max Verstappen of Red Bull won by like 25 seconds. The race was relatively boring, actually, kind of to be considered with Monaco, given kind of its inability to pass. But there was rain towards the end with like 15 to 20 laps to go. It changed things up. People had to switch tires. There was a little bit of movement there. It turned into bumper cars all of a sudden. Uh, with people kind of hitting each other and whatnot, but Max took off. It, there was a funny part during the end of the race that I don't know if people caught this, but Verstappen was bumping barriers, pushing it to the absolute limit while it's raining, and he has a 20-second lead. And his engineer comes over the radio, and he's like, hey, Max, maybe just like chill out a little bit, dude. You have a 20-second lead. We don't need to be setting fastest laps. Like, Just calm down, buddy. And he did, and he still won by 25 seconds. So the race was relatively boring, but qualifying was anything but boring. If you haven't watched qualifying yet, I promise you, you need to go watch the last five minutes of the third session in qualifying on Saturday. It was absolutely tremendous. I told someone over the weekend, and I actually believe this, people give Monaco shit, right, for the passing, but that qualifying session to end Q3 was better than some of the races, right? Like in Monaco, you're millimeters away from walls at 150 miles per hour, pushing it to the absolute limit. Literally one tiny mistake can ruin your weekend. Like take Checo, for example, right? He spins out, he hits the wall. His weekend's done. He was a non-factor in this race. He was lapped twice by his teammate. So one mistake in qualifying, you're done. And it's amazing to see these drivers push it to the absolute limit. I'm sure you've seen by now, if you're interested in Formula 1, Max Verstappen, his final sector on that third lap. So right, the lap is split into different sectors. The third sector and final sector on the lap was one of the best things I've ever seen in Formula 1. It was absolutely incredible. I'm not like, you know, a huge Max Verstappen fan, anything like that. I just think that he's one of the best drivers in the world. Legitimately, he's obviously in the best car this year. But ultimately, it was one of the best things I've ever seen in Formula 1. It was incredible skill, incredible talent. There are sections where he's literally going 125 miles an hour and brushing up against walls. I think he hit three walls. And there was this photo of his tires when the lap was over with, and there was just scuff marks all over him. That's how close he was getting to the walls. He was bumping up against them. And then I saw this other thing. I think it was on Reddit was someone took screenshots of Verstappen's car at certain places versus Alonso, who he was competing with to get pole and ultimately overtook in the last sector because of just a tremendous sector. And you just see like, Verstappen was pushing it to the absolute limit. They're absolutely like next to each other in certain areas. And Verstappen is just like several inches closer to each of the walls. And he's taking tighter lines. It was an absolutely incredible performance. One of the coolest things I've seen, the video is amazing. Even when you slow it down, you're like, holy shit, man, this guy is not messing around. He is legit. It was very, very, very cool. And I left the qualifying session saying to myself, that was not only insane, but I'm not one of these guys that prescribes to the fact that the 20 Formula One drivers are the 20 best drivers in the world. I don't believe that, right? You can't have Nicholas Latifi. You can't have Stroll to some degree. You can't have Logan Sargent. You can't have a bunch of these other people, especially people of the past, right? Don't get me started on people that have bought their way into teams in the past. But ultimately, you can't have those people in the sport and say, these are the best drivers in the world. There's certainly some of them. I would consider Max one of the best drivers in the world. Lewis is probably one of the best drivers in the world. Fernando, like there's a bunch of really, 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 really good drivers, but I don't think all 20 of them are the best in the world. And, you know, some people may not agree with that, but whatever, that's just my opinion. But I left that qualifying session saying, after watching Max do what he did, and I said, I really don't know how many people in the world could have done that. Literally, literally. 
I don't know, 10, 15, 20. Like, I don't know, maybe five, maybe two, maybe one. I'm not sure. But it's not as many as people probably think. And it was one of the craziest things I've seen in Formula One. It was an amazing lap. So it was very fun. I think Monaco needs to stay on the calendar for a number of reasons. But one, the qualifying is absolute to the limit. Some people say make it a time trial, whatever, whatever. You know, I don't care. Look, it's an entertainment thing. The qualifying session this past weekend was better than some of the full races that we've seen throughout this year, certainly of years in the past, especially with Red Bull being so dominant. I thought it was really, really, really enjoyable to watch these drivers push it to the absolute limit and try to get pull. Fernando Alonso's literally yelling on the radio, I'm an animal in this car. I'm controlling it like an animal, whatever the hell he was saying. It was hilarious, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why Monaco needs to stay. It's the pinnacle of motorsports. It's absolutely amazing to see what they do on that track, coming within millimeters of walls, at 100, 150 miles per hour. It's really, really impressive. All right. The last two things I want to talk about are Colorado, uh, Deion Sanders, and Oakland. Let's start with Deion Sanders' impact at Colorado. So this is something, again, that we've talked about in the past, Deion Sanders getting to Colorado. He has a $30 million contract, and he's already making a huge difference. The idea is that he can influence the, the organization and bring 10 to 15 times more value just based off of his impact on academics, right? If you're on national TV like Alabama is and other places like that, you're able to market your school. More people are interested in your school. Applications go up. You're able to bring in more students, not only in-state, but out-of-state students who pay more in tuition. It also raises the academic standards of your institution, so you're able to get more selective with the people that you're taking. AKA, there's a huge downstream effect that's just different from winning and losing football games. If your school is good, if they're talked about on TV, it's essentially free marketing, right? So my whole thing is like, whether Dion wins or loses, he's probably going to be worth the money. And if he wins, he's going to be worth a lot more than what he's actually being paid. And there's a bunch of different examples of this already, right? They've sold out season tickets for the first time in like 30 years. They've seen a 700% increase in merchandise sales already. They've added about a million followers on social media. They sold out their spring game, 45K fans on ESPN. And we got some more proof, right? So Brian Howell of Buff Zone, credit to him. I saw his, uh, I think he tweeted it out, but he also wrote an article for Buff Zone. He talked to Deion, or the AD at Colorado, not Deion Sanders specifically, but the athletic director at Colorado. And the athletic director gave some insight into the financial performance of the spring game. So keep in mind, we're only talking about the spring game so far. But he said that they sold $343,000 in tickets. $343,000 in tickets. And again, I want to give you some context just so you know how good that is. Colorado's spring game last year, they gave away tickets for free. They literally gave away tickets for free last year. And the stands were empty. The stands were empty last year. And they gave away tickets for free. This year, they made $343,000 in revenue off ticket sales. So essentially zero, actually what was probably an expense because you have to have staff, you have to have security, you have to have people, whatever. You, you have to have people working in the stadium and you gave tickets away for free and still no one showed up to $343,000 in ticket sales. And that's not all. They also sold $143,000 in concession sales. So 343 in tickets, 143,000 in concessions. And then an additional an additional $123,000 in team store sales. So we're talking about merchandise, stuff like that. So altogether, you know, again, I'm not doing public math here, but that's like $600,000, we'll call it, in ticket sales concessions and team store sales. And it was a game day revenue record for Colorado. Not, not just spring game, but every single game. It's a record. Every single game. You could take a freaking regular season game from last year against whatever, whoever they play, USC, whatever. I don't know who they played at home last year, but you get the point. The biggest games that they have every single year, they didn't make as much money as that. So absolutely incredible that they were able to do it from a spring game. But even if you take out the expenses, after expenses, the Colorado Athletic Director said they made $200,000 in profit. $200,000 in profit. And again, that's not counting all the marketing exposures, not counting all the other stuff. 
just in profit off that one spring game alone, they made $200,000. And my point is simple. The prime effect is real. I don't care if you don't agree with him. I don't care if you think he's being stupid about turning over the roster. I don't care if you think he's a bad coach. Some of that stuff I might agree with. I don't know, right? Like there, there's nuance to a bunch of these things. But the one thing you cannot argue, I believe, I believe, is that he is going to be a financially great option for Colorado. I think they're going to make a boatload of money off this decision to hire him. I think they're probably going to make back their money within a couple years on this deal. And and hopefully, potentially, right, if he is successful, we're talking about billions of dollars. What Nick Saban has done at Alabama, I don't want to compare him. I'm not saying he's going to go win national champions of all this stuff, right? I almost feel guilty like throwing that name out there because Nick Saban is like what you would look at as the top of the mountain. But even if he's just having national success, right? If he's playing in big games, if ESPN's talking about it, if he's on social media, the school's going to make billions of dollars because out-of-state students pay significantly more in tuition. If they're able to double their enrollment, they're going to make billions of dollars in potential future revenue off of this success. And I think it's going to be a great deal. Now, like you're not going to pay the guy $100 million because there's buyouts and there's all these other things and you don't know if he's going to be successful. But it's a smart bet, in my opinion, to pay the guy $30 million because if it works, which it is working so far, right? They haven't played a real game yet, but from a financial perspective, it's working so far. You're going to make this in tenfold. It's going to be very simple to do. And it's going to be good both from a football perspective, but also an academic and a financial perspective. So again, this is something that we'll talk about as things continue to come. I love that the Colorado athletic director is sharing like legit numbers. It's not often that you get, hey, this is the exact dollar amount we made in ticket sales, concession sales, team store sales, and profit. Like that never happens. So kudos to him for being so open. I hope he continues to do that. So throughout the next couple of years, we can see exactly what Deion Sanders is doing from an economic perspective for the university. We'll see. You guys know my feeling on this stuff. I think whether he's successful or not, it's probably going to be a good deal. And if he's successful, it's going to be a great deal. So time will tell. We'll see. I'll keep you guys updated as always. All right. The last thing I want to talk about is the Oakland A's new stadium in Las Vegas. So this is something that it feels like we've been talking about. Other people have been talking about forever, but they released new renderings, 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 renderings this past weekend for a potential new ballpark in Las Vegas. It's $1.5 billion ballpark. It has 30,000 seats, partially retractable roof and views of the Las Vegas Strip. Now, there's a few things to this, right? $1.5 billion is is relatively a lot of money, especially when you consider that the stadium's only going to have 30,000 seats. That is, by all accounts, the smallest MLB stadium. Tropicana, where the Tampa Bay plays, actually has less seats available. It's a bigger stadium with more seats, but they closed off a portion of the seats. So if you were to count like how many seats are actually available to be sat in without being closed off, then Oakland would be the smallest. But if you're counting the seats that close off in Tropicana, then Tropicana is the smallest. But regardless, it's one of the smallest, it will be one of the smallest ballparks in Major League Baseball. It's only going to have a partially retractable roof, which to be determined on like what that actually means is half the stadium going to be covered is, you know, 10% of the stadium going to be covered is 95% of the stadium going to be covered. We don't really know yet, but that's obviously important. Look, it gets hot as hell during the summer in Las Vegas. You need to cover the fans. If it's not going to be indoor, you have to have the ability to shade them and make it indoor. Right, you can you can make it outdoor for some games, but ultimately fans are going to want an indoor stadium. So I think that's an important thing. And then the the other part of this is public funding. They're looking to get three hundred eighty million dollars in public funding, and the bill was introduced at the Nevada Legislative this past week. They're looking again for three hundred eighty million on one point five billion dollar stadium. So call it you know one point one billion is going to be paid for by the athletics. The rest is going to be paid for by Las Vegas taxpayers. They initially wanted 500 million. Las Vegas told them to kick rocks. Now they're trying for 380. And look, a, a good portion of this is going to be done through taxes in and around the stadium to pay it back. There's going to be bonds and stuff like that. 
it's not exactly clear like where the money is actually going to be coming from so far or yet, but that'll come. If you think about what happened with the, the Raiders when they moved from Oakland to Las Vegas, they implemented a hotel tax to give them $750 million to build Allegiant Stadium, one of the nicest stadiums in the NFL today. Beautiful stadium. They, they sell it out. They get like, I think it was 97% capacity the last year. So Vegas can sell games. People will go to the games, whether it's visitors or locals. The money is being collected through hotel taxes. So it's actually not necessarily the people that live there unless they're visiting the hotels and pay it themselves. But, you know, it's neither here nor there. We can argue till our faces are blue, whether this is a good deal or not for public taxpayers. In a lot of cases, it's probably not. Some cases, maybe it's an okay deal, depending on kind of how the taxes are actually collected. But the last thing I want to talk about with the Oakland A's is a funny story I heard. ESPN, I don't know exactly what it was. I think it was like either outside the lines or some ESPN special. I was just watching TV this weekend or had ESPN in the background. And they were talking about Oakland's fans. And they were saying that, you know, how quiet the stadium is. And I forget what pitcher they talked about, but it was a hilarious story about one of the pitchers that visited Oakland this year. And I'm sure most of you probably know what Pitchcom is. It's the device that helps with sign stealing. So the catcher or the pitcher can signal the pitches they want to throw to each other. The pitcher has a device that, you know, speaks out to him. And the catcher usually calls it on his thing, although someone like Shohei Otani actually calls the pitches himself. So the idea is that you can hide kind of what pitches you're, you're throwing so no one can pick your signs or whatever it is. And the pitcher that was competing in Oakland said it was the quietest stadium that he's ever been to, you know, high school, college, MLB, minors, whatever. Quietest stadium he's ever been to. And it was so quiet that he had to turn down the volume on his pitchcom device. Had to turn down the volume. Now, look, we could talk about the Oakland A's and their fans forever. I actually think the fans don't deserve shit here. Like, they used to show up to games. They love the team. They'll show up if the team is good. If John Fisher leaves, they build a new stadium. Like, all these things, the fans would be there. But they're not going to give their money to an owner that has literally publicly tried and is leaving the area, right? He's saying, I don't want to be here. You guys suck. I'm not trying to do this. And he's done this for years, right? So they're fed up with this stuff. They don't care about the team. They traded all the good players. I don't blame the fans at all in this situation. But the fact of the matter is that they're not getting any fans at games, right? I, there's several videos that have gone around. Like there can't be more than three, four or 500 people at some of these games. The stands are just absolutely empty. And we can talk about this forever, right? The capacity, the percentage that they're filling. We could talk about their ticket sales. We could talk about the fact that they sometimes make fans stay in the seats that they purchased, right? Even if you're up top or whatever it is. But I think the, the pitch comp thing is probably the most ridiculous and the most embarrassing thing I've heard yet. I have never heard of a pitcher having to turn down his pitch comp device because he thought the players that are hitting could hear it. He said, that's how quiet the stadium could hit. He said, you could hear the fans yelling things at you loud as day. Literally, you could hear every single word they're saying, which he's never experienced before. And then secondly, he's never experienced having to turn down the pitchcom device because it's too quiet in the stadium and he thinks players are going to hit it. Absolutely comical. Again, we'll see what happens with Oakland. It's just like everything else. These things are a work in progress. I don't even think these renderings are the final renderings. It's like one of those things where Oakland's already released like three to four different things at this point. They had Howard Terminal. Now they're doing Vegas. They still have this ridiculous long backstop behind the home plate that they have in Oakland. And it's like, come on, what are you guys doing? The stadium, I didn't think was nearly as cool as it could have been. There's a backdrop of the Las Vegas Strip, which is cool, right? There's this huge outdoor area, which is cool. But ultimately, like, what are you doing, right? Like, if you're going to build a $1.5 billion stadium, it's 2023, build something cool. I want to see something awesome, a new stadium, something different. And unfortunately, we didn't see that. But like I said before, I don't think these are the last renderings we're going to see. The Oakland Hayes have a tendency to just release news or renderings or whatever it is whenever there's bad press or publicity around them. So this, in my opinion, is probably one more of those things. It's probably going to take some time to play out if we're being honest with ourselves. Months, maybe even a year or two at this point. They're going to be in Oakland for at least the next year, maybe two years. It's going to get worse before it gets better. 
but I will, as always, keep you guys updated as more stuff happens. All right, that's it for today. Again, we have a gentleman's agreement on this show. If you enjoy this podcast, if you tell your friends about it, whatever it is, just make sure you share it, right? Like if you're getting any value from this, if you're learning anything, if you're enjoying me breaking down these topics, just share it with a friend, maybe two friends, maybe three friends. I don't know how many friends you guys got, but just share. I create all of this content for free. That is all I ask for in return. And ultimately, I enjoy doing this stuff. So thanks again, guys. I hope everyone has an incredible day and an incredible week. We will talk tomorrow.